in Colossians chapter 2 today. So if you would turn there. And as we do, you know, I, let me, let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll jump into the text. Father, we come to you this morning. And Lord, what a beautiful name our Savior is. Lord, there's a lot that would like to eclipse or distract that name. Some things are good. Christian busyness also can distract. But the hurts of this world, the trouble that we are facing, it seems, Lord, uh, help us not to lose sight of that beautiful name and whom we claim. Lord, guide us as we go to the text today. Move Hophetus out of the way and allow your word to do what it does best, and that is to pierce our hearts, encouraging the soul, exhorting us as we claim the beautiful name of Jesus, and whose name I pray. Amen. On the 13th of May in 1940, a speech was made in London to the House of Commons. In fact, it wasn't very well received. Many felt that the speaker was unqualified for his position. <laughs> and others felt, well, the content was poor and it was delivered poorly. And yet, as one historian has stated, those words have reverberated down through the decades. And it was Winston Churchill's address. I want you to listen to these words because uh, they echo what we're going to see in Colossians. Churchill states, I would say to the house, as I said to those who have joined this government, that I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. I need to say it with that voice of his, but I, I'm not very good, but you get the idea, right? We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering you ask, what is our policy? I will say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us. To wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark liminal catalog of human crime. He goes on to state, but I take up my task with buoyancy and hope. I feel sure that our cause will not be suffered to frail among men. At this time, I feel entitled to claim the aid of all. And I say, come then, let us go forward together with one united strength. That dark hour, that speech is given. And I would argue we face a dark hour <laughs> as a church. Oh, it sounds rather ominous, but let's face it. The church is struggling to be the church. The church is struggling because we live in a world that is so hostile to the things of the gospel. What once was in China or the former Soviet Union, we now have churches in LA who are having their land seized and pastors being threatened with imprisonment. Never would I have dreamed. We are in a struggle. And Paul, this is not foreign to Paul, because he states, look at chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. We mentioned last week that the term behind this is where we get the term agonize. <laughs> He's already mentioned this in verse 29. It strings, it bridges from the previous chapter when he said, towards this goal, I also labor struggling 
he states. And look at verse 24 of chapter 1. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. So he's saying, listen, I'm struggling for you. I struggle for the gospel and I am suffering for it. In verse 1, he tells us how he's struggling, doesn't he? Notice what he states. I want you to know how great I struggle I have for you. And the question is, well, how is he doing that? And I think prayers for sure, right? His personal concerns. Mind of a parent who has a wayward child, how you struggle for them, right? <laughs> this past week, we had a friend whose granddaughter, who's in her 20s, has made some very poor decisions. And their hearts break. Maybe you can relate. And you struggle. You're on your knees constantly in prayer. You worry that you might receive a phone call from the police stating uh, their decisions have led to X, Y, or Z. Maybe you've got a child that fits that parameter and you understand what Paul is saying. I I struggle deeply for you, penning the letter, but but also through his toil and labor and wrestling. In fact, he mentions later of Paphras in chapter 4, the man who helped start that church at Colossae. He said, he struggles with you as well. We were in this together. But, but who is he struggling for? Look what he says in verse 1. There are three groups. He says, first, uh, the struggle I have for you, which Im- implicates, especially at the latter part of the verse, this is a group he knows. Now, we've stated he's never been to Colossae. This is in modern Turkey. If I could take you there, we've stood on the tell or the hill of Colossae. We'd see Laodicea, about 10 miles away, Hierapolis with the hot springs. It's a beautiful location. But no, he was about 100 miles east of that, west of that, which is at Ephesus, where Paul ministered. But undoubtedly, we know, like Epaphras, accepted Christ through Paul's ministry directly there. We know Onesimus, remember that fellow? He was the runaway slave of Philemon. He's from Colossae. So there are a lot of contacts that Paul has had with this city. And so some of them he knows personally. So he says, I struggle for you. I struggle for those in Laodicea. And you go, that's interesting. Why would he mention that? Because I think it's God's sense of humor. Laodicea and Colossae were two rival towns. Laodicea was surpassing Colossae's glory at this time frame. Just a side note, do you know that two years after Paul pens this letter, the church of Colossae is destroyed, or the city is destroyed in a massive earthquake? These are timely words. Not that Paul knew that that earthquake was coming, but take heed. You don't know what tomorrow holds, right, is the idea. And Laodicea and Colossae were kind of rival towns, and I think Paul was trying to draw those cities together via the church being unified. And so, in fact, he states, when you're done reading this letter that I've pinned you, send it over to the church at Laodicea. (laughs) Let them know that I love them too. And then finally, for those he's not met, which are many within the church at Colossae. He's never been there. He's not met most of these folks. And yet he says, I struggle for you. You get the how, you get the who, but why? Why are you struggling for a group you've never met? And even for these others, I mean, where is Paul? He's not in the, you know, drinking, I don't know, a virgin doctory on the shores of Tijuana. He's not on vacation. He's imprisoned in Rome. I mean, you think about Paul's ministry at this point, uh, you know, 
we're about 30, about 25 years from when he initiated on that Damascus road being called by God to, to go to the churches, to the Gentiles, to now, which is in the 60s. And he's saying, you know, 30-some years, and, and think about all that he's experienced in his ministry. Imprisonment, left for dead, beaten, and the list goes on. And he says, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this all for the gospel and for you. This is why I'm doing this. But why? And he's going to lay out four, and I've put the first two under the first point in your notes here. There are four reasons that Paul gives for why he struggles to, for these, these believers and let's, let's look at this. He says, first of all, in verse 2, my goal is that your hearts, having been knit together in love, which is assumed they are, right? And, and that term knit together, um, if, uh, if you've done any sewing, you understand, right? Uh, I, I know enough, not even enough to be dangerous. 1 Corinthians 8 talks about how we are, we're being built together. And Ephesians says we're being knit together, right, in love. And it says may be encouraged. The first of these, as he's laying out, is a struggle with the desire. And the first part of that desire is that they be encouraged. Fellowship and support among the believers. Remember, you got a church, they're young in the faith, they've got false teachers that are attacking them. We're going to see more of that in this section today. And he's very concerned about the church. And he says, first of all, circle the wagons. <laughs> Uh, you know, we're in this together. I've been watching the Clone Wars with my son, Josiah. And um, there's a scene where all the clones, you know, they, they circle their, it's, it's similar to the Wild West, right? They're circling their, in, their wagons, their cannons. And, and, and one of the clones says, well, at least we're in this together and we got the Jedi, right? Well, we're in this together. We're circling the wagons. Philemon 7 says, I've indeed received much joy, Paul states, and encouragement from what? Your love. Jesus stated in the upper room, how will the world know you're my disciples if you love one another? Satan loves isolation. Isolation, I, I think part of the pandemic has been one of the, there's some good things, there's some really bad things. And one of the bad things is we have been isolated from one another. Isolation and dissension are deadly to the church. We've got to focus on unity around the cross. There's an application there in your notes, the kind of the so what, how does it apply to me or the intersect. In our unity, the church manifests a world and life view that is informed and transformed by the gospel. We live out the gospel as we love one another. Kevin Van Hooser, professor of theology at uh, Trinity, states that the church is the theater of the gospel. I love that. The theater of the gospel. He says, we are performing the gospel for the world. In my college days, there was this girl that I liked, and you young men out here, you know it. You'll, you'll do anything that's crazy. And so I decided that I would try out for the play as well, Romeo and Juliet, just because she was in it, and I knew she was going to be one of the leading roles. So I did. That was embarrassing on many, many fronts. I had to wear tights, but I'd do it anything. <laughs> this was pre-Lori, so, uh, but I would try. I did anything, you know, so I had the tights and all that horrible stuff you do to be in a play. The worst part is my only line, I was Romeo's servant, 
was to say your looks are pale. The problem is with my accent, I know pale, pale. I didn't know how to say it, and I still struggle. Anyway, but I remember in those horrible moments, the director stating, you got you to get into the character. You, you, in order to do this, you got to be the character. Well, what's the character? Turn to Philippians 2. Paul tells us as followers of Jesus, Getting into the character, look what he says in 2.1, therefore if there's any encouragement in Christ, any conduct that is provided by love, by any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy, complete my joy and be of the same mind. There it is. He goes on, verse 4, each of you should be concerned not only about your own interest, but the interest of others as well. You should have the same attitude, and here's the character, towards one another that Christ Jesus had. Get into the character, getting into Christ. Modeling Him and how we interact with one another. And, and, and Paul says, I'm struggling, and, and part of that is a desire I have. I long for you to be encouraged. And where does that come? From loving one another being bound together. And, and his desire is also seen in the longing for assurance. Look what he says in verse 2, the second part, and that they may have all the riches. Where does that come? Verse 27, he said, God wanted to make known to them the glorious riches of this mystery. That assurance, go back to verse 2, that assurance brings in their understanding of the knowledge of the mystery of God, and I love how the Net Bible renders this because I believe it's, it, it's, what is the mystery? Namely, it's Christ. That's what we're looking at. He says, part of my desire in the suffering is a, a longing that you will be assured, a wealth of certainty that springs out of knowing Christ. What are the all these riches that assurance brings? I'd say ultimately it's to know Christ, His person, His character. Jesus is our Savior, our great shepherd, the living water, the great I Am, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, the truth, the way, the life, the light of the world, our friend. In fact, Paul states in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. <laughs> that, that's where we are. As we look at this and, and we look at what Christ has accomplished, the longing of assurance comes in knowing Him. All the promises of God are nestled in Jesus. In fact, he says in verse 3, he says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge and wisdom are virtually regarded as a single entity here. Knowledge is the apprehension of truth, whereas wisdom is the application to life. In other words, it's not just cognitive, it's effective. It spills out in all areas one theologian says, there's no full knowledge apart from moral commitment. Complete understanding results from completed yielding, and this understanding, listen to what he says, is Christ-centered or Christocentric. In your intersect, in your notes, I state certainty in the things of life are not found in experience, feelings, or community. 
Paul knows that. Those will, those will flee. You may have had bad pizza the night before, right? You, you can't base your theology on that. And in the midst of struggling, he says, I want you to have real assurance. And where does that come? It's in Christ, in His person, in His character, right? Our assurance is in this life, and it's found next, it's found in Christ. David Wells, we're having another, I don't know, sorry about the music. We'll just keep going. It's background. <laughs> sorry about that. David Wells, in his book, Courage to be Protestant, it's a great book if you've not read it. He says, Christianity is not just an experience we need to remember, but it is about truth. He goes on to state, evangelicals today are fearful, but they are fearful of all the wrong things. They are deeply apprehensive about becoming obsolete, of being left behind, so to speak, of being passed by and of not being relevant. I call it the fear of appearing to be Amish. Careful. Never mind that they should first and foremost be relevant to God and His truth. Paul understands we're in a war. We're in a grave struggle. And he says, I have this, this longing, this desire, and one is number one, that you will be encouraged because of your love for one another. But secondly, that you will be assured. And where is the assurance found? He says it's in Christ. But he doesn't end there in talking about the struggle he has for the church because he states in verse 4, I say this so that no one will deceive you through arguments that sound reasonable. <laughs> it's called persuasive speech, right, uh, is the idea that, in fact, this is the first time he uses this term here in Colossians, but he's going to come back to this. I mentioned this a couple times. It's similar to watching a Charlie Brown movie, and there's a phone conversation, and you hear on the other line, wah, 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 wah. And so you're trying to piece it together, and you can do that with this epistle, because what we, can, what we know and what we're going to see even next week is that there's a group that's coming along and saying, you know, you really don't need Christ to know the things of this world. This whole Christian-y stuff, you're getting to be a little too conser ultra-conservative. <laughs> In fact, look, i give you the, show you a little of what we're going to see next week. Look at verse 8. He says, be careful not to follow anyone to captivate you through an empty, deceitful philosophy that is according to human traditions and not according to, and here again, he goes back to, it's not Christ. This idea, he says, that they're looking to deceive or delude you with their great arguments. Interesting, that Greek term is used in the translation of the Old Testament of Delilah, Laban, and the witch of Endor, if you remember. He says, be very careful. They are enticing you to destruction. And this is what he's highlighting. Well, how do you know their rhetoric is deceptive? How do you discern this, Paul? Well, I think that goes back to verses 2 and 3, right? That you understand the knowledge of the mystery, the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. A good friend of mine works in the old city of Jerusalem. He sells antiquities. His name is Zach. Zach was telling me one day he had a guy come in trying to sell him a, a, an ancient piece of pottery, and he says, I took it, I looked at it, and I immediately threw it to the ground and smashed it in a ton of pieces. And he said, get out of my shop. I said, well, how did you know it was a fake? He said, well, I wasn't quite sure. But <laughs> I said, Zach, 
He said, well, he said, you know, when you handle the real thing time and time again, you just know. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't look right. It may not even smell right. It's fake. And if you collect coins, you understand a little bit of that as well. And what Paul is saying, you want to know a counterfeit? You better be studying this, right? We're in a grave danger. I think this is my theory of why the church has not prevailed in Great Britain. I mean, think about it, late 1800s, early 1900s, think about all the missionaries that were coming out of England and Scotland. And I think one of the major problems that happened in the Great, Great Britain is that they don't have Sunday school for adults. They don't have training uh, adult Bible study. And I think they lost a generation of equipping them to ascertain what is true and what is not true. We have a responsibility of equipping the saints and Paul says, take heed. Look at 2 Timothy. Second Timothy, Paul, in his last epistle that's recorded in the New Testament, to little tiny Tim, he says a few things here. In 2.14 of 2 Timothy, he says, remind people of the things and solemnly charge them before the Lord not to wrangle over words. Then look at chapter 3, a familiar text. 312, he says, now in the fact, all who want to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Verse 14, you, however, must continue in the things you have learned and are confident about. You know who taught you and how from infancy you have known the holy writings, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation. And here it is, through faith in Christ Jesus. He says, you know the word and, and, and you need to be in the word. And so the intersect, which is in your notes, contrary to present day thinking, truth is not personal or unattainable. Listen to what I'm saying here. It's, it's loud and clear in our society today. If you're those of you in college and, and those of you in high school, I know you're hearing it. It's not about the journey or in the searching. No. What we're dealing with is the our eternal state, I would argue, depends on the knowing. Divine revelation with eternal consequences. We are called to know. We're not going to know all the things of Scripture. Even Paul, Peter said some of Paul's writings, they're hard to understand. But there are certain things we must know with certainty. And God expects us that we will know this with certainty. And in fact, He's a rather sadistic God because He's going to hold us eternally accountable for the knowing. And so Paul is stating here, be careful in navigating those who would want to undermine the truth. Be in the Word. Be cautious. And we live in a society that wants to applaud the unknowability, the lack of certainty. In fact, to be dogmatic on anything is to be seen as a fundamentalist. <laughs> we, we must be on guard. Scripture is clear, and we will be held accountable for all eternity to know these things. Well, the struggle is with a desire. It is with caution. And then finally, this last part is with a personal benefit. He says, I say this so that no one will deceive you through arguments and then he says, for though I am absent with you in body, I am present with you in spirit. What in the world is he saying there? You know, um, first, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you remember there's a guy that's in sin. 
And he says, you need to have a meeting. There needs to be church discipline. He said, while I am absent, I am there in spirit. So he uses that same line there as well. I believe what's going on here is what is that the believers at Colossae and Paul live with Christ. They share the indwelling of the spirit. And so Paul can state he is present with them in spirit. Collectively, they are one. So he's saying, if I was there, this is what it should be. And, and he says, in what? Look what he says in verse 5. Rejoicing to see your morale and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Joy occurs 320 sometimes in the New Testament. Over 40% are found in Paul's writings. And we've already seen it in Colossians. One, Colossians 1.11, he says, I joyfully give thanks for how God is working in and through you. Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings because it's for you, he says. And now he states, I, I want to find joy. And what is that in? Your morale and the firmness of your faith. Both of those terms, morale and firmness, are military terms. Morale refers, refers to the soldiers getting in position. And firmness is used of blockades. We're in a battle. Paul understands that. And he says, we are joined together in Christ because of faith, which he highlights there in that last phrase. We are no longer our own. We bear the name of Christ. And, you know, I was thinking about this. What brings you joy? What brings me joy? Is it when the kids behave, <laughs> good grades, family, the Celtics winning? I don't, I don't know. What brings you joy? For Paul, it's the spiritual vitality of the church. Even individuals he doesn't know. He says, I take great joy in knowing that, that you're growing in your faith in Christ. Another question is, do you rejoice in the spiritual success of others? I'm not, I've been long enough to know that, that the green monster is alive and well in the church, big C. <laughs> the spiritual jealousy, as a friend calls it, I think it's just right. Sadly enough, it, it is there. And we need to be careful because Paul isn't about, I mean, Elsewhere, he says, hey, if the gospel's being preached, I don't care what the motives are. I don't care if they're dragging my name through the mud. It's that the gospel is being exalted and that I rejoice. He says, I rejoice that you are growing in your faith. And the intersect there is the church is a living mission statement, a communal display of the supreme evangelical truth that your faith rests in Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting when Christ delivers the seven letters to, to John to give to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, do you remember one of them goes to Laodicea? Remember what happened with Laodicea? The Lord states, you know, I wish you were hot or cold. In other words, I, I wish you were one way or the other. I mean, I, I wish you were doing it, doing what you've been called to do. If you're hot water, I wish you were hot water. If you're cold, you're cold. What does he say? No, you're lukewarm, and I, I'd rather just vomit you out. You're, you disgust me. Because your Christianity has become watered down. You're no longer what I have called you. This is Christ speaking to the church at Laodicea. These are not real nice words, right? They're getting spanked. And how sad that if they had just heeded these words about, I don't know, uh, 30 years before when Paul wrote to Colossae and then to be given over 
to Laodicea, your morale, your firmness must flourish in Christ. It's not enough that we assent intellectually to the fundamental teachings of the Bible. Even the demons understand that Jesus is God and they tremble, James states. But that we are a people of the gospel, we're living out the gospel. Our world desperately needs a faithful church rather than a successful church. A church under the cross rather than a church that has accommodated its culture. A church that is living out the gospel rather than merely giving lip service to its message. Right? I love that there was a group of believers under Billy Graham's ministry gathering at D.C. this weekend. One of our own was there. He sent me photos. He said, I, I, to see over a million people gathering, praying for our country was so moving. We're in a battle. And as Paul says, I struggle for you, the church. And he says, I, I, I have this desire Desire that you be encouraged, that you be assured in your faith. I, I, I have this struggle because there's a great caution that is looming. Don't be taken in by the false teachers. And then as we see here, there's a struggle with a personal benefit. Oh, I want to rejoice in that you are being found faithful to the task that you have been given. Let me paraphrase Churchill's address. Come then, let us go forward together with our united strength in Christ. In Christ. Paul says, exalt this one. No wonder he spent the, uh, a large portion of chapter 1 saying, who is this Jesus? <laughs> he is the creator of the universe and he's the head of the church. And it is in him that we have assurance in Him that we can be bound together in love, in Him that we can be encouraged, in Him that we can be shored up against the false teachings that loom in this society that we live in, and in Him we can grow in our faith. It's in Christ. Stand fast, O church. We're in a battle, and it's far worse than a group of Nazis possibly invading our land. Satan is alive and well. He's attacking the church, and we need to be putting on the armor of God and standing fast, right? And as you know, the only piece of the armor that's not mentioned in Ephesians is the shin guards, because I think that's because we're on our knees in great prayer. Father, we come to you this morning, and we thank you. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the church. And Lord, it is our great longing, Father, that as we join in this struggle, Father, that we be found faithful, that we're known as a people of the Word, we're known as a group who love you deeply and love one another. Thank you for our time in Colossians. <laughs> Thank you for this beautiful book small book nestled in the pages of the New Testament that ring loud and clear even today. In Jesus' name.